Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 39 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 30th of October. And Leon, what have we got on the program for this week? Well, Gary, first of all, we're going to have a chat with Nigel Gerrard, he's the CEO of Aurora. They, they are a packaging company. They're actually a spin-off from Amcor, and they've won all these innovation awards. So we're going to talk, be talking to him all about innovation in business. Yep, and very, uh, very smart man. Uh, it's a very nice interview. Okay, and uh, after that, we're going to have a chat with BT economist Chris Caton, and we're going to talk to him about what the government should be doing about super. I think they're going to do quite a bit by the look of all these things and seem to be pretty active around Turnbull at the moment. Absolutely. Anyway, let's first of all have a chat with Nigel Gerrard. Nigel Gerrard, uh, Aurora's won the Business Process Innovation Award at BRW. Tell us about innovation. Leon, good question. We, we see innovation as a real competitive advantage. We've also said it's one of the key focuses of our business. So it's innovation from a product point of view and from a process point of view. You know, the BRW Award, though, was, I think, recognition of a product innovation for one of our key customers, of which we're very proud. This was for cans, wasn't it? This is for cans, yeah. And it started with the, with a program where Coke wanted to have different print on different cans, and the traditional process said you couldn't do that. And they started with names on cans, and they wanted to have multiple names in packs. And we came up with a way to do that, which has now been licensed for use around the world. So what's the process here? I mean, do you, do you have an R&D team? Do you, how do you do it? Well, I th- the process is twofold. We have R&D teams. We have six or seven sites around the world, so in North America, in New Zealand, and particularly here in Australia. And we also have uh, uh, innovation processes on site, which can be either product or process. But we have a central team in, uh, in each region which looks at process and product innovation. So it's got to be, a, I think, a multi-strategy so that you get the best of everybody in your organisation. So how, does the, how do the ideas come through? So we have a combination of customer requirements where we sit down with customers and look at their brand or product plans over the next three to five years. We have what is currently called white space thinking sessions where we look at consumer trends or product trends which are done internally and sometimes with some external involvement to look at what else we can do and then we use uh, third-party equipment suppliers and those type of things as the third sort of source. So it's a, a multifaceted approach to try and get the best outcome. North America is a big market for you then. Yes, yeah, so North America is about a third of our market. So we do about $1.25 billion in sales in North America. We've got 50-odd sites, mainly on the west coast of uh, of the US. Which is pretty interesting given you're an Australian company, but America was the home of packaging, wasn't it? it was, in the old days, yes. Uh, and uh, and we're, we're, I think, using... Uh, we're selling paper from our new paper mill in Sydney into North America. So there's 60,000 tonnes a year going there. We've got a corrugated converting business in North America and in Australia and in New Zealand. So we're sharing activities there. But, you know, the US is a big market. You know, we've got a decent-sized business, but there's lots of opportunities for growth there. Still, yeah. Yeah. You announced an innovation growth fund. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think one of the things we wanted to do is is show that innovation is more than just talk. So we announced a $45 million global innovation fund, and that's for new projects outside normal business. could be customer innovation, it could be product innovation, it could be process innovation, it could be automation. 
and we're encouraging our people to think differently, to think outside the square and to say there's this pot of money here that we want to spend to make a meaningful difference in our business. Also, I noticed from reading in on the company that you pay great attention to, I suppose you might call a man management or relationships within the company with your employees about health and safety, getting ideas and this sort of thing. And that's obviously a big part of what you're doing. Yeah, I think at, at Aurora, yeah, we've got a, we've got a saying we use internally and we say that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And we think if we've got the right people motivated, incentivized and focused on our goals, then that will be a competitive advantage. So we spend a lot of time on our culture, on our people and those type of things. We think that really is a strategic advantage. How do you build that culture? Well, you can build it one, you can build it one piece at a time. What we did when we demerged from Amcor is we asked 300 of our people around the world, what do you think we stand for and what do you think our values should be? And those 300 people, were there wasn't management. They were nominated by their peers. And we used them as the sounding board. And then we've communicated that through the organisation to be very clear about what we believe, what we value, and what we deliver are the three things. We call it the Aurora way. And then people are incentivised, people are judged, people are encouraged, people are promoted on our culture and you've got to walk the talk. You've got to walk the talk every day. Culture is a never-ending journey, but the response that we've, we've had has been outstanding. And the mantra has been respectful of the past, but excited about the future. So how do you go about recruiting these sorts of people? What do, what do you look for? We go with the mantra, hire for attitude, train for skill. So we look at what are the key characteristics characteristics that we want at Aurora, what are the key values and behaviours that we think are important for our organisation and success, and we use that as the primary um, the primary sort of lens through which we look at potential people. So this would improve productivity in a totally painless, cooperative way? Yeah, there's plenty of research that says engagement and motivation are the best ways to improve productivity. And, you know, I still stand by culture eats strategy for breakfast. If you've got the engagement and you've got the um, you've got the hearts and minds of your people, then it makes a big difference. And it's a nice place to work. It's a nice place to work, yeah. And, and you know, you want people to be proud of the place that they work at, pass what I call the barbecue test where you say, where do you work? I want people at a barbecue to puff their chest out and say, I'm proud because I work at Aurora. So how different was the culture from Amcor? Well, we, we use the, the mantra, you know, respectful of the past, excited about the future. Yeah. So we're a little, we're smaller than Amcor, so we can be a bit nimbler. And we've looked at ways that we think we can differentiate ourselves. We've said customer centricity is a really important part of who we are at um, Aurora. Innovation is an important part of who we are at, uh, at Aurora. And what we've tried to instill is a passion for our business. What about, um, you know the the environment and things like that. You you're in the paper business, which is energy efficient mm-hmm. or energy use a lot of energy. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, do you keep an eye on that sort of thing as well? Yes. Yeah, so we have sustainability goals, which is about water usage, it's about greenhouse gas emissions, and it's about waste to landfill, which are the three key areas that we look at. What we you know we think we've got a social responsibility as a as a corporate organisation. But it's also, interestingly, an engagement tool, particularly for 
the um, the younger employees where your social responsibility and the way you handle and deal with the environment are increasingly important. And I noticed now as you talk to potential employees, that's more and more becoming something that people are talking about. Often talent goes to places where their their inner feelings, if you like, about sustainability, the atmosphere, they go there mm-hmm. probably often more for more for that than money. Yeah, it's interesting if you look at the um, if you look at the stats about employing people, money tends to be sort of five to ten somewhere down that level, and you know respect for your manager, corporate sort of goals, which includes environment and sustainability, you know, the culture, those things are much more important. So we, I mean, we see it as being both a social responsibility, but also a competitive advantage. In terms of recruitment, uh, how, how extensively do you do that? And do you do it differently in each market that you're in? Well, we, we have to differentiate depending on the role, but, um, but I don't, from a culture, I think you need to be consistent right through. And, uh, and it doesn't matter if you're a first a first year apprentice or if you're a senior manager in the organization you know if a culture is going to going to become and maintain itself as a competitive advantage it's got to be consistent right through the organization so we're pretty unrelenting it's got to be a consistent approach right across the organization now in terms of idea generation do they do they just come from your teams or do they come from everyone or how does it work they come from families of of our team members really they come from our teams you know <laughs> Ironically, our name, for example, uh, we asked for suggestions on our name. A lot of people would employ a consultant, right? We asked our people, and uh, we had over 5,000 responses in six days. And, um, and one of the five people that suggested Aurora was actually a child of one of our team members. So, we, you know, I think it's important if you can engage families in where mum or dad or the brother or sister work, that's a really important thing. And when I hear stories about our families, of our of our team members looking at packaging in supermarkets to see if we made it or not, then you know you've got the engagement. And so are you, are you in all supermarkets? So we supply, so we're, we supply most of the um, FMCG, so the fast-moving consumer goods businesses. So we'll supply cans to, um, to a number of, you know, the big consumer brands, Coke, for example. We'll supply biscuit um, or cereals or, or all of the packaging that you see in a store. It, you know, a large proportion of that comes from us. One question. Packaging is important in sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that maybe set your design skills aside from competitors? What do you look for? I think you've got to have an understanding of the ultimate consumer, right, and what the, what the brand stands for. If you, when you go, particularly those things that are sold in supermarkets, people buy with their eyes first. And mistakes that you see is people come up with a great package and they put it on a desk in a boardroom and say, doesn't that look good? That's actually not a good way to do it because that's not how consumers buy. You've got to go and have a look at it on the shelf and say, does it stand out? Does it depict the brand in the appropriate way? And I think for us, we want to make sure that we work with our customers to understand their ultimate customers because that's where the brand, that, you know, our business will grow only if our customers' business grows. Yeah. So you, you'd have people looking at, say, the soap powder shelves, very mm-hmm. crowded, mm-hmm. but a couple of the designs I've seen here, are there and they do stand out yeah so and and the way we do it is if you're going to go and look at that on a supermarket shelf then i'll ask you to go and get a trolley and then walk down the aisle 
because that's how people shop. Rather than people in suits walk down aisles and just look at it. That's not how people shop. That's, no, that's so right. So you have to understand how the shopper makes a difference. And how, how much contact would you have with customers? I'd imagine that would be pretty full on because yep. you'd have to find out exactly what they want. You do. Another of my favourite sayings is we were all born with two ears and one mouth and we should use them in that proportion. <laughs> so we should go and talk to our customers. And for me, it's about not only what's happening this week, this month, this year, but it's about what's, what, your, what the customer's three- and five-year brand and category plans are because then we can help them develop packaging and innovation that supports that. And so how often are these discussions? Well, depending on the customer. Personally, I would have them with a different customer every week. Our sales guys would do it every day. We have discipline programs, you know, quarterly, half-yearly, annual reviews with differing tiers of the organisations. It's an important discipline. You've got to keep doing that. And so your team members are expected to do this constantly? Yeah, we have a, we have a discipline system inside the company where those things are recorded, actions are agreed, dates are, uh, dates are agreed, and people are held responsible and accountable for that. It's got, it's got to be a regular thing. And in a way, that's a good thing because people then feel they've got ownership, don't they? Absolutely. Ownership and responsibility, those two things go hand in hand. And if they've got that, then you'll get outcomes. And people then feel passionate about that particular outcome. They feel passionate about the process and they want to make sure it happens. Nigel Gerard, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. Well, what do you think, Leon? I thought that was amazing. Aurora is really doing very well. And I noticed it's in the news again this week. They're talking about solar energy. That's right. No, they're pretty, they're pretty out there, aren't they? They're very, very impressive as a company. Yep, really indeed. And, uh, you know, it's got a big business in the US as well, as Nigel says. Yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, let's now have a chat with BT economist Chris Caton, all about super. Chris Caton, uh, where do you think the government will head with superannuation? Well, it's an interesting question. I guess I'd start from this point that although there is currently no debt and deficit disaster, we do have a medium-term fiscal problem. That, that, that is the... All, all reasonable projections suggest, you know, a big gap years into the future between uh, revenues and spending. So if you want to fix that, you um, essentially nothing should be off the table. And uh, on the revenue side in particular, if you wish to raise more revenue, it's obvious you go after the big things. So uh, you you contemplate, for example, raising or or widening the GST. And when you come to income taxes. It seems as you know higher in, higher income tax rates are anathema. So you basically need to look at ways in which people find not to pay um, their income taxes. And you know the two well two standout ways um, in which people manage not to pay taxes for whatever reason, right or wrong, are negative gearing and superannuation tax concession. And it's quite clear no the. It's very difficult to figure out exactly what the superannuation tax concessions cost because nobody knows what you would do, what, you know, what people would do with the money uh, if they couldn't put it into super. But it, but it's obvious. Two things are obvious. Number one, the, it's a big number, and number two, uh, it does accrue disproportionately to the top end of the income distribution. So you have to figure that um, it, it's it, the, the government will look. At it, and uh, and it wouldn't surprise me if the concessions are stripped back to some extent. As indeed, in in this is my personal view, I think I believe they should be. So, how far back would they be stripped? I mean, 
What, what are you envisaging? First of all, this idea that uh, you know, once you've reached um, uh, 60, uh, that uh, you can uh, withdraw money from super without paying a tax on the way out. Uh, I think that will be looked at again. I think also we already have a higher um, tax on contributions for people earning three hundred thousand and above. You could you could start that higher tax on contributions where the top marginal rate kicks in, say around around one hundred eighty thousand, or you could do what they suggested in the Henry Review all those years ago. Instead of having the money that um, that goes into your super taxed at fifteen percent, give everybody a fifteen percent discount. From their, from whatever marginal rate they happen to pay. So, for example, at the low, at the, uh, at the low end, that means that um, you'd be taxed only about four or five percent on the money going in. But at the top end, you'd be taxed um, well at the, at the current rates, including the um, the deficit levy. You'd be you'd be um, taxed around thirty four percent. Both of those changes make sense to me. Right. I mean, uh, Scott Morrison yesterday flagged uh, having some changes to, to, uh, for women to fill the super gap there and, uh, and for that matter, carers. I mean, what was your view about that? I guess I don't have a, um, a strong view about that. That uh, because, I guess because I look at this from a macro fiscal point of view. But but yes, it is it is clear that um, in part because of their uh, disrupted work careers on average, also in part because um, their pay levels tend to be lower. That uh, when they get to retirement age, we all know this. Uh, when they get to the retirement age, women you know have less in the kitty than uh, than men do on average, of course, and. Uh, and, and yeah, it would make some sense to address that issue in some way. Well, certainly to ameliorate that particular um, problem. But I haven't given a good deal of thought to exactly what makes sense in that area. You mentioned uh, negative gearing before. What's your view about that? Well, I guess my view is um, negative gearing has, um, has become something of an evil twin. And um, uh, I think that's overstated to some extent. Um, the, uh, to me, it's not negative gearing per se. That is the issue, but it is um, it's negative gearing associated with the very favourable way in which we treat capital gains. That is the issue. So basically, um, I mean, people are encouraged to invest, and um, negative gearing, of course, is used mainly in residential property, but it's by no means confined to residential property. But people are encouraged to invest. Uh, did uh, get get the full value for all their deductions uh, all the way along as they own the property and then pay tax on only half of the gain when they sold the property it's it's quite clear that the that um, if you look at when investor interest in housing if you look at when that stepped up uh, it was essentially when they halved the rate on capital gains not when they introduced negative gearing um, so you know i think it's that interaction that has to be looked at uh, and and so maybe you do something to change the treatment of capital gains rather than negative gearing per se. A couple of other things, of course, once again, despite, um, you know, we're told negative gearing that this is a mum and dad way of getting rich. Well, nevertheless, it is it is disproportionately used at the top end of the income distribution. Secondly, there is a myth around that uh, that when negative gearing um, was uh, scrapped temporarily in the mid-80s, it caused havoc in the uh, investor market. It caused rapid rises in rents. This is complete and utter urban myth. Well, of all the reasons to keep negative gearing, if you like, the very, very last one is that it will create havoc in the residential market if we get rid of it. So do you see the government moving to get rid of negative gearing? 
Uh, it's a bit like the third rail, essentially, that because there is this belief that you know everybody um, does have a chance of benefiting from it. I, I would rather uh, look at the way capital gains are taxed instead of giving you like say a fifty percent discount, uh, give you a, give you a one third discount. So you would say that the government should be looking at uh, changing capital gains. As I said, we do have a medium-term problem that can't be fixed only on the spending side. Revenue does have to be um, uh, looked at. Uh, and, and when you look at revenue, you look at the big ways in which people manage not to pay income tax. And um, if you start from that view, capital gain, the, the way in which we tax capital gains and the interaction with negative gearing should certainly be looked at. Given that uh, the government, despite what Scott Morrison says, does have a revenue problem, you'd say that would be a matter of quite some urgency then? Uh, well, yes, um, it is a medium-term problem, so it's never urgent, but that's the problem. Um, because it's never urgent, it never gets fixed and it only gets bigger. I, I, you know, I think we need... Essentially, while the new administration has, um, you know, should we say, a lot of um, community backing behind it, and by that I mean business and ordinary voters, um, yeah, I think we need a comprehensive plan that can be demonstrated to, to in a sense, share the pain. So that, you know, um, if you're going to trim the rate of growth of pensions, if you're going to trim the rate of growth of health care one way or another, that the, the top end of town is seen to be paying it, to, to be doing its bit, if you like, via... Not not via higher tax rates, but by but by lower tax exemptions. And uh, so, do you see that happening before the election? I doubt that. There's not a lot of time before the election. It would make more sense, um, in a sense, to to. Um, to go to the election would make more sense from the point of view of an economist, perhaps not a politician, but it would make more sense to go to the election essentially with an outline of the program that you promise to implement after the election. So as part of an overall tax package, perhaps? Yes. And how would you be selling that? I would sell it along the lines of um, we're all in this together. We, we, we do have this medium-term fiscal problem. It's got to be addressed. This particular package that we've come up with addresses some, current inefficient, some inefficiencies in the current tax system and also has the benefit of uh, going some way to fixing that problem. And, oh, by the way, in this package that I'm presenting here and now, um, the costs are shared. So the big end of town, if you like, um, uh, pays as well as well so that you don't get for example as we got in the reaction to the 2014 budget you don't get this view that it's just plain unfair I mean, it, that we come up with a fair package and that means the burden of higher revenues and lower spending the burden is clearly seen to be shared now that's going to be very difficult to sell but that what that's what has to be sold chris Caton, thank you very much for your time it's my pleasure well i just hope super keeps being super but uh I think some of the upper-level people are going to take a bit of a haircut. I think so, too. I think so, too. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see what Mr. Morrison produces. That's right. Anyway, it's been a big week in news, Gary. And uh, first of all, with the Fed this morning announcing that they're going to leave interest rates on hold, getting everyone then to focus on what's going to happen in December, all the focus has gone on to China, and China reckons after it's cut interest rates six times since November, it reckons it's going to maintain relatively high levels of economic growth in the next five years. And the People's Bank of China Vice Governor Yi Gang told the conference he's confident that China's economy will grow at around 7% or higher than 6% in the next three years and beyond. 
And Mr. Yi said that urbanization, further reform and opening up are two major driving forces for China's growth. And he reckons China's current 55% urbanization rate is still too low and it might take another 10 years to achieve 70% urbanization growth, in which case it's, uh, the Chinese economy would really take off. Which would be very good for us too. I know, I know, but I'm not so sure. I mean, if, if your economy is going well, so well, why do they have to keep cutting interest rates? They've cut it six times. Yeah, that's right. And also, of course, there's a risk that the uh, the housing boom that they had would be re- reignited with a lower interest rate. Yeah, so I'm, I think we all watch that place very clearly, carefully. Now, Treasurer Scott Morrison has flagged changes to bolster the savings of women, carers and people whose working lives are disrupted, and extra measures might include lifting the concession tax cap on contributions, allowing top-up payments from those who are playing catch-up after they've re-entered the workforce. And uh, this morning he was talking to the AFR about closing down loopholes in the system. Yeah, and I think that's a bit overdue too. The carers particularly need a lot of help. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, to the Comsec State of the States report, in New South Wales and Victoria are powering the rest of Australia in, in economic performance thanks to the housing industry and population growth. And Comsec State of the States report has New South Wales in top position for the fifth consecutive quarter, driven by housing construction, housing finance, population growth and retail trade. Victoria comes in second on population growth, housing finance and housing construction. And Comsex reckons there's little separating New South Wales and Victoria, both to maintain the gap with the other economies, because stronger population growth is driving housing activity and retail spending. The Northern Territory and Western Australia are in third spot, with rising unemployment and housing partly offsetting lower economic growth and retail trade, and they're followed by Queensland, ACT, South Australia and Tasmania. Yeah, poor old Tasmania. It's a nice place, but it's... Uh a bit of a basket case economically. That's right. Now, uh, a new Deloitte report takes a look at the housing bubble and what's causing it, and uh, it says that while negative gearing gets all the bad press, it's actually the 50% capital gains tax discount that's been responsible for driving all the frenetic properties, property speculation, along with low interest rates and a lack of housing supply. And it's putting forward a whole lot of options for reform, including reducing the size of the discount to 33.3% and extending the holding period requirement from 12 to 24 months. Yeah, I think that's a bit overdue, and I think Morrison's going to move on that one. Yeah, yeah. Now, all the tipping at the moment is that the RBA is going to cut interest rates on Cup Day next week because Australia's official inflation rate missed expectations in September quarter. Uh, the core came in at the lower end of the RBA's annual target band. The Consumer Price Index, which is a key measure of inflation released by the ABS, lifted only 0.5% in three months, and that's bring the annual rate to 1.5%. All the economists were expecting 1.7%. So ANZ put out a note yesterday saying they had thought the RBA would cut interest rates at the next year. Now they're saying they could move earlier. And Credit Suisse has lifted the likelihood of a November rate cut to 66%. Yeah, but it, it'll, what will it be, 25 basis points? And I don't know it's going to have really much effect anymore. It's so low as it is. I know, I know. Now, consumer confidence has consolidated around its long-run average, despite mortgage rates rising from all four big banks. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Weekly Consumer Confidence Index rose just 0. 1%. So it's flat lining after it slumped 2% the previous week. Now, this was a bit surprising given further announcements of increases in variable home, owner home late rate increase rates in last Friday. ANZ's co-head of Australian Economics, Felicity Emick, reckons that uh, while respondents' view about their household finances is solid, the economic outlook remains a concern. 
and a broadly stable jobless rate over the past year in hopes that Prime Minister Turnbull can deliver better medium-term economic outcomes looks to have boosted their economic outlook, but it's a case of watch this space. And the the employment figures are a bit rubbery because there's so many part-time workers now. Indeed, indeed. Now, worrying news for the union movement, uh, according to the latest ABS figures, union membership across the workforce has fallen to its lowest ever level. Only 11% of private sector employees choose to belong to organised labour. Overall trade union membership fell from 17% to 15%. Now, you know, back in 1992, it was running at 40 and uh, total membership fell in, over one year from 1.74 to 1.6 million, with public sector membership dropping from 42 to 39 percent. And the ABS reckons 17 percent of full-time workers and 12 percent of part-time workers are trade union members in their main jobs. And I mean that is really quite alarming for the union movement. Uh, indeed, it is. I mean, you could have to say that they, most of their power is gone. I mean, and I think. You know, I don't think Turnbull and, and Morrison and co are going to be too tough on them because it would be a bad look. But nonetheless, they can proceed pretty much as they want to, I think, without worrying too much about organised labour. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Now, there's been some interesting figures coming from corporate Australia and the business news. First 10 Network has seen its full year loss nearly double as the it seeks to launch $154 million through new share placements. And it logged a full year loss of $312.2 million for the 12 months through to August. That's a blowout of 86% compared to the previous year's $168.3 million loss. And uh, full-year revenues, which rose, however, 4.6% to $654.1 million. And Tenet Chief Executive Paul Anderson says the company's priority is about increasing the television audience share and revenue across all platforms, and it's expecting gross av- advertising revenue to increase by at least 10% in the first three months of 2016. I mean, that's quite massive. And uh, bear in mind, too, they've had approval for Foxtel to take a 15% stake in them. Yeah, which is good, I think. But, you know, free-to-air television got terrible problems called Netflix and YouTube and this sort of thing, and there can only be more and more of that. Yeah, well, let's take a look. Now, Blue Scope Steel has come back from the edge. It's going to continue to make steel at Port Kembla, and that decision comes after employers' unions in New South Wales had made commitments to rein in production, and as a result, it's now expecting 40% growth in 2016 compared to 2015, which is $500 million more. And it comes after Blue Scope employers voted on a deal between the company and the AWU that set a three-year pay and strike freeze, overtime cuts, and the loss of 500 jobs. Of course, this decision to continue at Port Kembla is subject to formal ratification of these enterprise agreements. And I think they'll probably go through the way things are out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh just shows what people are having to sacrifice. Now, Australia is going to have its first 100% renewable energy utility in South Australia. Now, Zen Energy, it uses a combination of solar, wind, power, hydro and biomass for energy solutions, and it plans to take entire communities off the grid. It's going to be approaching councils and communities with renewable energy on-grid or off-grid. And these can become co-investment schemes with multiple stakeholders providing dividends for owners, and it's going to be sold back to the community at a fraction of the current cost. And the company has the backing of the author of 2008 Climate Change Review, Ross Garner, who is its chairman. Yeah, which is very interesting. And, of course, this was the subject of the Aurora worry about the energy market in South Australia because if a lot of consumers go to their own rooftop things, it's going to attenuate the formal uh, generation market. 
That's right. So let's let's take a look at what happens in that space. It's going to revolutionise the electricity industry, I think. Now, things are looking up for Pacific Brands, the once embattled manufacturing retail of big brands like Bonds. And the company's chief executive, David Bortolucci, told shareholders that Pacific Brands intends to resume its interim dividend payment payment with a payout ratio of at least 50%. He's also told them sales are up 7%. And as part of that outlook, the company plans to take on sports majors like Nike and Adidas with its own brand of athletic gear in the active wear market. And a new line of medium performance women's active wear is going on sale in mid-November at Myers with sports leggings selling for 60 bucks. And that will be undercutting the top brands by 40 bucks. Yeah, very competitive, I would have thought. And they're good designers too. That's right. So it's good to see Bonds bouncing back. It's really good, overdue. Mm. And Harvey Norman has responded, reported strong growth with sales in the three months of September bouncing 7.1%, the strongest growth since the financial crisis. That's lifted earnings 27.8% to 91.8 million. And uh, Jerry Harvey was telling Fairfax that the all the consumer polls showing that uh, consumer confidence is down are just wrong because people yeah. are buying. Well, if the, I think Jerry's right there at the cold face, and he would know uh, if the consumers are spending. That's right. Now, National Australia Bank has reported a lift in full-year cash profit, along with confirmation of partial sale of its life insurance business, and has put a timeline on the long-awaited Clydesdale D merger. It posted a cash profit of $5.84 billion, and that's up 15.5%. And as well as that... Um, it's going to offload 80% of its life insurance business to Lip on Life for $2.4 billion, and it's going to retain the remaining 20%. And as well as that, it also uh, is demerging the Glasgow-based Clydesdale business, and it's eyeing a demerger of Clydesdale in early February, and about 75% will be offered to NAB shareholders. The balance, about 25%, will be offered to institutional shareholders through an IPO on the London Stock Exchange. Yeah, very interesting. Of course, NAB's main problem isn't in those areas. It's really in its business banking, where it's it's taking a bit of a caning because the other banks in the big four group are all poaching their customers. Well, the issue for NAB is it wants to get rid of these low-returning overseas businesses and focus on what it does well. Yeah, and it it has been and still is the main business bank. Uh, and it's going to protect that very vigorously, I'm sure. That's right. And finally, Gary, Dick Smith Holdings as low as its full year profit guides despite reporting sales growth the first quarter of the financial year. And sales rose 6.9% compared to a year ago. But a disappointing October caused the company to lower its guidance. And it's now warned that net profit after tax is going to be five to eight million below the previous forecast of 45 to 48 million. So that's something to watch out for. What's happened to Dick Smith? Well, that's right. And of course, JB Hi-Fi is going very vigorously. And so is Jerry Harvey. And they're their main, Dick Smith's major customers. That's right. And again, it's a woe for uh, Woolies, isn't it? That's right. That's right. So let's take a look and see what happens there. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's, that's excellent. And, uh, next week, we're going to be talking to Vicky Marmberg, an entrepreneur. And, uh, in the meantime, you can be in touch with us on Twitter at talkingbizbizz or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.